Book Two, Chapter Seven, of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Two, Chapter Seven. There is no situation which tries so severely the patience and discipline of the soldier as a life of idleness in camp, where his thoughts, instead of being bent on enterprise and action, are fastened on himself and the inevitable privations and dangers of his condition. This was particularly the case in the present instance where, in addition to the evils of a scanty subsistence, the troops suffered from excessive heat, swarms of venomous insects, and the other annoyances of a sultry climate. They were, moreover, far from possessing the character of regular forces, trained to subordination under a commander whom they had long been taught to reverence and obey. They were soldiers of fortune embarked with him in an adventure in which all seemed to have an equal stake, and they regarded their captain, the captain of a day, as little more than an equal. There was a growing discontent among the men at their longer residence in this strange land. They were still more dissatisfied on learning the general's intention to remove to the neighborhood of the port discovered by Montejo. It was time to return, they said, and report what had been done to the governor of Cuba, and not linger on these barren shores until they had brought the whole Mexican empire on their heads. Cortes evaded their importunities as well as he could, assuring them there was no cause for despondency. Everything so far had gone on prosperously, and, when they had taken up a more favorable position, there was no reason to doubt they might still continue the same profitable intercourse with the natives. While this was passing, five Indians made their appearance in the camp one morning and were brought to the general's tent. Their dress and whole appearance were different from those of the Mexicans. They wore rings of gold and gems of a bright blue stone in their ears and nostrils, while a gold leaf delicately wrought was attached to the under-lip. Marina was unable to comprehend their language, but on her addressing them in Aztec, two of them, it was found, could converse in that tongue. They said they were natives of Kempoalala, the chief town of the Totonacs, a powerful nation who had come upon the great plateau many centuries back, and descending its eastern slope settled along the sierras and broad plains which skirt the Mexican Gulf towards the north. Their country was one of the recent conquests of the Aztecs, and they experienced such vexatious oppressions from their conquerors as made them very impatient of the yoke. They informed Cortes of these and other particulars. The fame of the Spaniards had reached their master, who sent these messengers to request the presence of the wonderful strangers in his capital. This communication was eagerly listened to by the general, who, it will be remembered, was possessed of none of these facts laid before the reader, respecting the internal condition of the kingdom, which he had no reason to suppose other than strong and united. An important truth now flashed on his mind, as his quick eye descried in this spirit of discontent a potent lever by the aid of which he might hope to overturn this barbaric empire. He received the mission of the Totonacs most graciously, and, after informing himself as far as possible of their dispositions and resources, dismissed them with presents, promising soon to pay a visit to their lord. Meanwhile his personal friends, among whom may be particularly mentioned Alonso Hernández de Puerto Carrero, 
Cristóbal de Olid, Alonso de Avila, Pedro de Alvarado, and his brothers were very busy in persuading the troops to take such measures as should enable Cortés to go forward in those ambitious plans for which he had no warrant from the powers of Velázquez. To return now, they said, was to abandon the enterprise on the threshold which, under such a leader, must conduct to glory and incalculable riches. To return to Cuba would be to surrender to the greedy governor the little gains they had already got. The only way was to persuade the general to establish a permanent colony in the country, the government of which would take the conduct of matters into its own hands and provide for the interests of its members. It was true Cortés had no such authority from Velázquez, but the interests of the sovereigns which were paramount to every other imperatively demanded it. These conferences could not be conducted so secretly, though held by night, as not to reach the ears of the friends of Velázquez. They remonstrated against the proceedings as insidious and disloyal. They accused the general of instigating them and, calling on him to take measures without delay for the return of the troops to Cuba, announced their own intention to depart, with such followers as still remained true to the governor. Cortés, instead of taking umbrage at this high-handed proceeding, or even answering in the same haughty tone, mildly replied that nothing was further from his desire than to exceed his instructions. He indeed preferred to remain in the country and continue his profitable intercourse with the natives, but, since the army thought otherwise, he should defer to their opinion and give orders to return as they desired. On the following morning proclamation was made for the troops to hold themselves in readiness to embark at once aboard the fleet which was to sail for Cuba. Great was the sensation caused by their general's order. Even many of those before clamorous for it with the usual caprice of men whose wishes are too easily gratified now regretted it. The partisans of Cortés were loud in their remonstrances. They were betrayed by the general, they cried, and thronging around his tent called on him to countermand his orders. We came here, said they, expecting to form a settlement if the state of the country authorized it. Now it seems you have no warrant from the governor to make one, but there are interests higher than those of Velasquez which demand it. These territories are not his property, but were discovered for the sovereigns, and it is necessary to plant a colony to watch over their interests, instead of wasting time in idle barter, or still worse, of returning in the present state of affairs to Cuba. If you refuse— they concluded, we shall protest against your conduct as disloyal to their highnesses. Cortés received this remonstrance with the embarrassed air of one by whom it was altogether unexpected. He modestly requested time for deliberation, and promised to give his answer on the following day. At the time appointed he called the troops together, and made them a brief address. There was no one, he said, if he knew his own heart, more deeply devoted than himself to the welfare of his sovereigns, and the glory of the Spanish name. He had not only expended his all, but incurred heavy debts to meet the charges of this expedition, and had hoped to reimburse himself by continuing his traffic with the Mexicans. But, if the soldiers thought a different course advisable, he was ready to postpone his own advantage to the good of the state. He concluded by declaring his willingness to take measures for settling a colony in the name of the Spanish sovereigns, and to nominate a magistracy to preside over it. For the alcaldes he selected Puerto Carrero and Montejo, the former cavalier his fast friend, and the latter the friend of Velázquez, and chosen for that very reason a stroke of policy which perfectly succeeded. The regidores, 
alguacil treasurer and other functionaries were then appointed all of them his personal friends and adherents they were regularly sworn into office and the new city received the title of Villa Rica de Veracruz, the rich town of the True Cross, a name which was considered as happily intimating that union of spiritual and temporal interests to which the arms of the Spanish adventurers in the New World were to be devoted. Thus, by a single stroke of the pen, as it were, the camp was transformed into a civil community, and the whole framework and even title of the city were arranged before the site of it had been settled. The new municipality were not slow in coming together when Cortes presented himself cap in hand before that august body, and, laying the powers of Velázquez on the table, respectfully tendered the resignation of his office of Captain General, which, indeed, he said, had necessarily expired, since the authority of the governor was now superseded by that of the magistracy of Villarica de Veracruz. He then, with a profound obeisance, left the apartment. The council, after a decent time spent in deliberation, again requested his presence. There was no one, they said, who, on mature reflection, appeared to them so well qualified to take charge of the interests of the community, both in peace and in war, as himself, and they unanimously named him, in behalf of their Catholic Highnesses, Captain General and Chief Justice of the Colony. He was further empowered to draw, on his own account, one-fifth of the gold and silver which might hereafter be obtained by commerce or conquest from the natives. Thus clothed, with supreme civil and military jurisdiction, Cortes was not backward in exerting his authority. He found speedy occasion for it. The transactions above described had succeeded each other so rapidly that the governor's party seemed to be taken by surprise, and had formed no plan of opposition. When the last measure was carried, however, they broke forth into the most indignant and opprobrious invectives, denouncing the whole as a systematic conspiracy against Velázquez. These accusations led to recrimination from the soldiers of the other side until from words they nearly proceeded to blows. Some of the principal cavaliers, among them Velázquez de León, a kinsman of the governor, Escobar, his page, and Diego de Ordaz, were so active in instigating these turbulent movements that Cortés took the bold measure of putting them all in irons and sending them on board the vessels. He then dispersed the common file by detaching many of them with a strong party under Alvarado to forage the neighboring country and bring home provisions for the destitute camp. During their absence, every argument that cupidity or ambition could suggest was used to win the refractory to his views. Promises, and even gold, it is said, were liberally lavished, till by degrees their understandings were open to a clearer view of the merits of the case. And when the foraging party reappeared with abundance of poultry and vegetables and the cravings of the stomach, that great laboratory of dissatisfaction, whether in camp or capital, were appeased, good humor returned with good cheer, and the rival factions embraced one another as companions in arms, pledged to a common cause. Even the high-mettled hidalgos on board the vessels did not long withstand the general tide of reconciliation, but one by one gave in their adhesion to the new government. What is more remarkable is that this forced conversion was not a hollow one, but from this time forward several of these very cavaliers became the most steady and devoted partisans of Cortes. 
Such was the address of this extraordinary man, and such the ascendancy which in a few months he had acquired over these wild and turbulent spirits. By this ingenious transformation of a military into a civil community, he had secured a new and effectual basis for future operations. He might now go forward without fear of cheek or control from a superior, at least from any other superior than the crown, under which alone he held his commission. In accomplishing this, instead of incurring the charge of usurpation, or of transcending his legitimate powers, he had transferred the responsibility, in a great measure, to those who had imposed on him the necessity of action. By this step, moreover, he had linked the fortunes of his followers indissolubly with his own. They had taken their chance with him, and whether for weal or for woe, must abide the consequences. He was no longer limited to the narrow concerns of a sordid traffic, but sure of their cooperation, might now boldly meditate, and gradually disclose those lofty schemes which he had formed in his own bosom for the conquest of an empire. Harmony being thus restored, Cortes sent his heavy guns on board the fleet and ordered it to coast along the shore to the north as far as the Chiahuitzla, the town near which the destined port of the new city was situated, proposing, himself at the head of his troops, to visit Kempualala on the march. The road lay for some miles across the dreary plains in the neighborhood of the modern Vera Cruz. In this sandy waste no signs of vegetation met their eyes, which, however, were occasionally refreshed by glimpses of the blue Atlantic, and by the distant view of the magnificent Orizaba, towering with his spotless diadem of snow far above his colossal brethren of the Andes. As they advanced, the country gradually assumed a greener and richer aspect. They crossed a river, probably a tributary of the Rio de la Antigua, with difficulty on rafts and on some broken canoes that were lying on the banks. They now came in view of very different scenery, wide rolling plains covered with a rich carpet of verdure and overshadowed by groves of cocos and feathery palms among whose tall slender stems were seen deer and various wild animals with which the spaniards were unacquainted some of the horsemen gave chase to the deer and wounded but did not succeed in killing them they saw also pheasants and other birds among them the wild turkey the pride of the american forest which the spaniards described as a species of peacock on their route they passed through some deserted villages in which were indian temples where they found censers and other sacred utensils and manuscripts of the agave fibre containing the picture writing in which probably their religious ceremonies were recorded they now beheld also the hideous spectacle with which they became afterwards familiar of the mutilated corpses of victims who had been sacrificed to the accursed deities of the land the Spaniards turned with loathing and indignation from a display of butchery which formed so dismal a contrast to the fair scenes of nature by which they were surrounded. They held their course along the banks of the river towards its source when they were met by twelve Indians sent by the cacique of Kempoalala to show them the way to his residence. At night they bivouacked in an open meadow where they were well supplied with provisions by their new friends. They left the stream on the following morning, and, striking northerly across the country, came upon a wide expanse of luxuriant plains and woodland, glowing in all the splendor of tropical vegetation. The branches of the stately trees were gaily festooned with clustering vines of the dark purple grape, variegated of convolvuli, and other flowering parasites of the most brilliant dyes. 
the undergrowth of prickly aloe matted with wild rose and honeysuckle made in many places an almost impervious thicket amid this wilderness of sweet-smelling buds and blossoms fluttered numerous birds of the parrot tribe and clouds of butterflies whose gaudy color is nowhere so gorgeous as in the tierra caliente rivaled those of the vegetable creation while birds of exquisite song the scarlet cardinal and the marvellous mockingbird that comprehends in his own notes the whole music of a forest filled the air with delicious melody the hearts of the stern conquerors were not very sensible to the beauties of nature but the magical charms of the scenery drew forth unbounded expressions of delight and as they wandered through this terrestrial paradise as they called it they fondly compared it to the fairest regions of their own sunny land as they approached the indian city they saw abundant signs of cultivation in the trim gardens and orchards that lined both sides of the road they were now met by parties of the natives of either sex who increased in numbers with every step of their progress the women as well as men mingled fearlessly among the soldiers bearing bunches and wreaths of flowers with which they decorated the neck of the general's charger and hung a chaplet of roses about his helmet flowers were the delight of these people they bestowed much care in their cultivation in which they were well seconded by a climate of alternate heat and moisture stimulating the soil to the spontaneous production of every form of vegetable life the same refined taste as we shall see prevailed among the warlike aztecs many of the women appeared from their richer dress and numerous attendants to be persons of rank they were clad in robes of fine cotton curiously coloured which reached from the neck in the inferior orders from the waist to the ankles the men wore a sort of mantle of the same material in the moorish fashion over their shoulders and belts or sashes about the loins both sexes had jewels and ornaments of gold round their necks while their ears and nostrils were perforated with rings of the same metal just before reaching the town some horsemen who had rode in advance returned with the amazing intelligence that they had been near enough to look within the gates and found the houses all plated with burnished silver on entering the place the silver was found to be nothing more than a brilliant coating of stucco with which the principal buildings were covered a circumstance which produced much merriment among the soldiers at the expense of their credulous comrades such ready credulity is a proof of the exalted state of their imaginations which were prepared to see gold and silver in every object around them the edifices of the better kind were of stone and lime or bricks dried in the sun the poorer were of clay and earth all were thatched with palm-leaves which though a flimsy roof apparently for such structures were so nicely interwoven as to form a very effectual protection against the weather the city was said to contain from twenty to thirty thousand inhabitants. This is the most moderate computation, and not improbable. Slowly and silently the little army paced the narrow and now crowded streets of Kempualala, inspiring the natives with no greater wonder than they themselves experienced at the display of a policy and refinement so far superior to anything they had witnessed in the new world the cacique came out in front of his residence to receive them he was a tall and very corpulent man and advanced leaning on two of his attendants 
he received cortez and his followers with great courtesy and after a brief interchange of civilities assigned the army its quarters in a neighboring temple into the spacious courtyard of which a number of apartments opened affording excellent accommodations for the soldiery here the spaniards were well supplied with provisions meat cooked after the fashion of the country and maize made into bread cakes the general received also a present of considerable value from the cacique consisting of ornaments of gold and fine cottons notwithstanding these friendly demonstrations cortes did not relax his habitual vigilance nor neglect any of the precautions of a good soldier on his route indeed he had always marched in order of battle well prepared against surprise in his present quarters he stationed his sentinels with like care posted his small artillery so as to command the entrance and forbade any soldier to leave the camp without orders under pain of death the following morning cortes accompanied by fifty of his men paid a visit to the lord of Kempoalala in his own residence it was a building of stone and lime standing on a steep terrace of earth and was reached by a flight of stone steps it may have borne resemblance in its structure to some of the ancient buildings found in central america cortes leaving his soldiers in the courtyard entered the mansion with one of his officers and his fair interpreter doña marina a long conference ensued from which the spanish general gathered much light respecting the state of the country he first announced to the chief that he was the subject of a great monarch who dwelt beyond the waters that he had come to the aztec shores to abolish the inhuman worship which prevailed there and to introduce the knowledge of the true god the cacique replied that their gods who sent them the sunshine and the rain were good enough for them that he was a tributary of a powerful monarch also whose capital stood on a lake far off among the mountains a stern prince merciless in his exactions and in case of resistance or any offence sure to wreak his vengeance by carrying off their young men and maidens to be sacrificed to his deities cortes assured him that he would never consent to such enormities he had been sent by his sovereign to redress abuses and to punish the oppressor and if the totonacs would be true to him he would enable them to throw off the detested yoke of the aztecs the cacique added that the totonac territory contained about thirty towns and villages which could muster a hundred thousand warriors a number much exaggerated there were other provinces of the empire he said where the aztec rule was equally odious and between him and the capital lay the warlike republic of tlaxcala which had always maintained its independence of mexico the fame of the spaniards had gone before them and he was well acquainted with their terrible victory at tabasco but still he looked with doubt and alarm to a rupture with the great montezuma as he always styled him whose armies on the least provocation would pour down from the mountain regions of the west and rushing over the plains like a whirlwind sweep off the wretched people to slavery and sacrifice cortes endeavoured to reassure him by declaring that a single spaniard was stronger than a host of aztecs at the same time it was desirable to know what nations would co-operate with him not so much on his account as theirs that he might distinguish friend from foe and know whom he was to spare in this war of extermination having raised the confidence of the admiring chief by this comfortable and politic vaunt he took an affectionate leave with the assurance that he would shortly return and concert measures for their future operations when he had visited his ships in the adjoining port and secured a permanent settlement there 
The intelligence gained by Cortes gave great satisfaction to his mind. It confirmed his former views, and showed, indeed, the interior of the monarchy to be in a state far more distracted than he had supposed. If he had before scarcely shrunk from attacking the Aztec Empire, in the true spirit of a knight-errant, with his single arm, as it were, what had he now to fear when one half of the nation could be thus marshalled against the other? In the excitement of the moment his sanguine spirit kindled with an enthusiasm which overleaped every obstacle. He communicated his own feelings to the officers about him, and before a blow was struck, they already felt as if the banners of Spain were waving in triumph the towers of Montezuma. Taking leave of the hospitable Indian on the following day, the Spaniards took the road to Chiahutzla, about four leagues distant, near which was the port discovered by Montejo, where their ships were now riding at anchor. They were provided by the cacique with four hundred Indian porters, tamanes, as they were called, to transport the baggage. These men easily carried fifty pounds weight five or six leagues in a day. They were in use all over the Mexican Empire, and the Spaniards found them of great service, henceforth in relieving the troops from this part of their duty. They passed through a country of the same rich, voluptuous character as that which they had lately traversed, and arrived early next morning at the Indian town, perched like a fortress on a bold rocky eminence that commanded the gulf. Most of the inhabitants had fled, but fifteen of the principal men remained, who received them in a friendly manner, offering the usual compliments of flowers and incense. The people of the place, losing their fears, gradually returned. While conversing with the chiefs, the Spaniards were joined by the worthy cacique of Kempoalala, borne by his men on a litter. He eagerly took part in their deliberations. The intelligence gained here by Cortes confirmed the accounts already gathered of the feelings and resources of the Totonac nation. In the midst of their conference they were interrupted by a movement among the people, and soon afterwards five men entered the great square or market-place where they were standing. By their lofty port, their peculiar and much richer dress, they seemed not to be of the same race as these Indians. Their dark glossy hair was tied in a knot on the top of the head. They had bunches of flowers in their hands, and were followed by several attendants, some bearing wands with cords, others fans, with which they brushed away the flies and insects from their lordly masters. As these persons passed through the place they cast a haughty look on the Spaniards, scarcely deigning to return their salutations. They were immediately joined in great confusion by the Totonac chiefs, who seemed anxious to conciliate them by every kind of attention. The general, much astonished, inquired of Marina what it meant. She informed him they were Aztec nobles, empowered to receive the tribute for Montezuma. Soon after, the chiefs returned with dismay painted on their faces. They confirmed Marina's statement, adding that the Aztecs greatly resented the entertainment afforded the Spaniards without the emperor's permission, and demanded, in expiation, twenty young men and women for sacrifice to their gods. Cortes showed the strongest indignation at this insolence. He required the Totonacs not only to refuse the demand, but to arrest the persons of the collectors and throw them into prison. The chiefs hesitated, but he insisted on it so peremptorily that they at length complied, and the Aztecs were seized, bound hand and foot, and placed under a guard. In the night the Spanish general procured the escape of two of them, and had them brought secretly before him. He expressed his regret at the indignity they had experienced from the Totonacs, told them he would provide means for their flight, and to-morrow would endeavor to obtain the release of their companions. 
he desired them to report this to their master with assurances of the great regard the spaniards entertained for him notwithstanding his ungenerous behaviour in leaving them to perish from want on his barren shores he then sent the mexican nobles down to the port whence they were carried to another part of the coast by water for fear of the violence of the totonacs they were greatly incensed at the escape of the prisoners, and would have sacrificed the remainder at once, but for the Spanish commander, who evinced the utmost horror at the proposal, and ordered them to be sent for safe custody on board the fleet. Soon after they were permitted to join their companions. This artful proceeding, so characteristic of the policy of Cortes, had, as we shall see hereafter, all the effect intended on Montezuma. By order of Cortes, messengers were dispatched— to the Totonac towns to report what had been done, calling on them to refuse the payment of further tribute to Montezuma. But there was no need of messengers. The affrighted attendants of the Aztec lords had fled in every direction, bearing the tidings, which spread like wildfire through the country, of the daring insult offered to the majesty of Mexico. The astonished Indians, cheered with the sweet hope of regaining their ancient liberty, came in numbers to Ahuatzla, to see and confer with the formidable strangers. The more timid, dismayed at the thoughts of encountering the power of Montezuma, recommended an embassy to avert his displeasure by timely concessions. But the dexterous management of Cortes had committed them too far to allow any reasonable expectation of indulgence from this quarter. After some hesitation, therefore, it was determined to embrace the protection of the Spaniards and to make one bold effort for the recovery of freedom. Oaths of allegiance were taken by the chiefs to the Spanish sovereigns and duly recorded by Godoy, the royal notary. Cortes, satisfied with the important acquisition of so many vassals to the crown, set out soon after for the distant port, having first promised to revisit Kempualala, where his business was but partially accomplished. The spot selected for the new city was only half a league distant in a wide and fruitful plain, affording a tolerable haven for the shipping. Cortes was not long in determining the circuit of the walls, and the sites of the fort, granary, town-house, temple, and other public buildings. The friendly Indians, eagerly assisted by bringing materials, stone, lime, wood, and bricks dried in the sun, every man put his hand to the work. The general labored with the meanest of the soldiers, stimulating their exertions by his example as well as voice. In a few weeks the task was accomplished, and a town rose up, which, if not quite worthy of the aspiring name it bore, answered most of the purpose for which it was intended. It served as a good point d'appui for future operations, a place of retreat for the disabled, as well as for the army in case of reverses, a magazine for stores and for such articles as might be received from or sent to the mother country, a port for the shipping, a position of sufficient strength to overawe the adjacent country. It was the first colony, the fruitful parent of so many others in New Spain. It was hailed with satisfaction by the simple natives, who hoped to repose in safety under its protecting shadow. Alas, they could not read the future, or they would have found no cause to rejoice in this harbinger of a revolution more tremendous than any predicted by their bards and prophets. It was not the good Quetzalcoatl who had returned to claim his own again, bringing peace, freedom, and civilization in his train. Their fetters indeed would be broken, and their wrongs be amply avenged on the proud head of the Aztec, but it was to be by that strong arm 
which should bow down equally the oppressor and the oppressed. The light of civilization would be poured on their land, but it would be the light of a consuming fire, before which their barbaric glory, their institutions, their very existence and name as a nation would wither and become extinct. Their doom was sealed when the white man had set his foot on their soil. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven.